Our New Testament readings are taken from 2 Peter 1 and Matthew 17. 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never, <clears throat> never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 17, 1 through 9. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Lindsay. Ooh, you might want to turn me down a little. That was terrifying. Hi, everybody. How's it going? Um, so first thing, before the sermon, a couple of quick announcements. First off, um, this weird liney thing going on on the screen is not us being creative. There's something going on with our projector. Hope it's not too distracting. I think we'll make it through, right? Cool. All right. The, the second thing is I um, want to make a quick announcement that during Lent, which begins on Wednesday, um, and Lent I have found to be a really uh, important and powerful time that we can commit ourselves to uh, letting go of some things and embracing other things. Uh, we encourage everyone to fast two things during Lent. One, fast something that frees up resources so that on Easter we come and give a special Easter offering that is all given away to a good cause. And next Sunday we'll share what that cause is going to be. We're still working out some of the details. Um, but we would like everyone, if you're willing and able, to fast something that frees up resources, whether it's a afternoon latte or lunch out or whatever it is, fast something that frees up resources so that we can give to those in need in a special way on Easter. And then the second thing is fast something that will free up time for you to incorporate some kind of new spiritual discipline or practice in your life because Lent is a really unique 
kind of self-contained time that we can make unique decisions that can impact our hearts and minds. Uh, along with that, we uh, are going to do a book study this is kind of connected to Sunday practice on Sunday mornings, um, but I'm also going to have some Zoom uh, discussions on, in the mornings throughout the week. And the book is True Self, False Self by M. Basil Pennington, um, who, if you remember uh, the sermon a few weeks ago, I said, if your name is M. Basil Pennington, you either have to be a great Christian contemplative or on a yacht somewhere. And anyways, he's a great Christian contemplative, which is good for us. Um, but I will introduce the book next Sunday in Sunday practice, which is our, uh, our smaller worship service that we have before this at 10 o'clock back in the chorus room. And then uh, we'll just read the book together for the next month, essentially. If you want to join the Thursday morning groups, uh, we'll discuss two chapters every week. And as you can tell, the book is very small, very short chapters. It's kind of like now in, you know, depth here. And... Um, then on the final Sunday of March, we will actually just talk through the whole book. And it's just a powerful, good book that helps us kind of search and take inventory of our souls and how we're doing. So I would just encourage all of you to join in that if you are willing. It's an easy read, but also um, just really made a big impact on my heart. hope it can for you as well. Cool? Cool. You're supposed to say, yes, very cool. Okay. Anyways. All right. On to the sermon. So Curtis, last week, shared with us his three favorite movies, preceding back in time, Avatar, The Matrix, and Dumb and Dumber. Now, because I feel like you could tell a lot about a person from the movies that they like, and because it's important for you all to know us as your pastors well, I figured that this week I should share my three favorite movies as well. So those movies are... Warrior, Creed, and Creed 2. Now I know what you're thinking. What an eclectic mix, CJ. We just can't pin you down. Basically, all my favorite movies are about dudes with daddy issues that punch people in the face. Now, I don't know precisely what that says about me, but Curtis likes naked blue cat people, and that's way worse, okay? That's way worse, so I win. Now, this, they're pretty close. They're pretty close. Now, this sermon intro is basically just a roundabout public service announcement to say that Creed 3 comes out in less than two weeks. I hope you're excited. I'm about to lose my mind. Now, outside of the punching people in the face in search of identity genre, one of my favorite movies of the past few years is a movie called Free Guy. Noah is probably really disappointed that he's not in here right now because he's the reason that we watched Free Guy. He heard about it from a friend and basically begged us to watch it. And we were a bit hesitant because it's got Ryan Reynolds in it. And if you've ever seen a Ryan Reynolds movie, you know what that means. But we gave in and we decided to watch it and I loved it. Now, as with every time I talk about a movie or any entertainment property in church, I need to give the disclaimer, this is not necessarily a recommendation. Don't be like, my pastor said I should watch this. Go common sense media that thing yourself, especially if you have kids, and make a decision on your own. Like I said, it's a Ryan Reynolds movie, so, you know, it's full of innuendo and, you know, language, etc. Not too bad, but it is what it is. In the movie, though, 
Ryan Reynolds plays an NPC, a non-player character, in a video game named, generically, Guy, who lives a blissfully ignorant life in a meaningless, predetermined existence. The game exists for the players, the people that log in and play, and he just exists along with the other NPC characters to follow a predetermined pattern and facilitate the actual players' fantasies and hero stories that they get to play out. It's like a slightly less dark and sadistic version of Westworld. But it turns out that the game actually has some artificial intelligence coded into it, particularly Guy's character. And something happens that unlocks him. And he begins learning and adapting and changing. He begins breaking out of his predetermined narrative. And he begins to question the world that he's in and becomes open to change and possibility. And in the process of this sort of unlocking, he picks up a pair of glasses that only the actual player characters usually get to wear. And when he picks up these glasses, they reveal that a whole other reality exists under his reality, hiding in plain sight. He discovers that there are power-ups everywhere that he goes and rewards and quests that he can embark on. And this changes everything for him. He begins playing the game and changing the game in the process. Now, it's a silly movie. It didn't win any awards. It's never going to. But I love this concept of discovering a world hiding just beneath the world that you're in, of suddenly putting on a pair of glasses and discovering that there's an entire dimension to reality hiding right under your nose all the time that you couldn't see, but once you see it, it changes everything. Which leads me to two questions that I want to ask today. First, what if there really was a world beneath the world, a world behind the world that we see every day? What if this was true not just in Free Guy, in sci-fi and fantasy movies, what if this were true of real life? And then second, what if that hidden reality turned out to be very different than this one? What if, so to speak, that reality was playing a completely different game than the one we see and play every day? So let's just ask those questions for fun today. So what if there were a world beneath or behind the world that we live in? What if there was a reality beyond the things that we see and touch every day? Well, this, in a sense, is precisely what our gospel story today and this day of worship in general is about. Today is Transfiguration Sunday. When we read and reflect on the story of Jesus' transfiguration, Transfiguration Sunday is always the last Sunday right before Lent, which actually I kind of just learned. So there's something unique and important about this day and this story that prepares us for and ushers us into the season of Lent. 
Now, we read the story just a few minutes ago, but as a quick refresher, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of his disciples, up on a mountain. And while they're there, suddenly, Jesus is transformed. He appears no longer like the regular run-of-the-mill carpenter slash itinerant rabbi that they knew, but rather his clothes become whiter than any white they have ever seen, and he is bathed in an inexplicable and radiant light. And at the same time, the great leaders and prophets from the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, appear on the mountain along with him and talk with him. And Peter is like, Jesus, this is cool. I'll build you some tents. And Jesus is like, bro, we don't need tents. Look at me. I'm glowing. (laughs) Glowing people don't need tents. Which raises an interesting theological question. When Jesus is exasperated, who does he ask to take the wheel? Wait for it. That's hilarious. Come on. Oh, you haven't got there yet. Anyways, while Peter is stumbling over himself trying to build tents for radiant creatures, they are suddenly engulfed by a cloud, and a voice from the cloud rings out, mirroring the Psalms and Jesus' baptism, saying, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then, as quickly as it began, it was over. And Jesus reaches down and gently touches his bewildered disciples as they cover their faces and he stands them up and he tells them not to be afraid. Now there are some fascinating intellectual and academic observations to be made about this story. Why it's Moses and Elijah that visit how the story remixes the story of Exodus 24 that we read earlier, why six days and the seventh day are repeated over and over in these stories reflecting creation imagery. There's all sorts of fun stuff that we can talk about related to that, which we've done in the past with this story. But what I want to focus on today is a more spiritual observation. This story reveals that there is a world beneath the world. There is a dimension of reality that exists right between our noses all the time, hiding in plain sight that we seldom, if ever, see, but it is nonetheless real. In fact, it's more real, you could argue, than the world we see each and every day. Now, I don't want to seem too campy and comic booky with this. Right? There are strands of modern Christianity that in their desire for drama and epic stories and good, uh, clear good versus evil binaries have really played up these spiritual dimensions and spiritual realities to the point where often they absolve themselves and all of us of our own agency and responsibility to act in the real tangible world that's right in front of us. And in the process, peddled some pretty absurd and non-biblical things theology and eschatology. So if anytime you hear someone talk about this, I understand if the hairs on the back of your neck stand up a little bit, but I'm not talking about that. But if we believe that God exists 
And if we believe that the tomb is empty, then we also can't give in to the type of materialism that acts like what we see and touch every day is all that there is. And there aren't deeper realities beyond what we see right in front of our faces. And this actually is the very idea behind all apocalyptic literature that we see in Scripture. Apocalypto, the word in Greek, means to disclose or reveal or unmask. It doesn't predict the future, even though sometimes those other kinds of theology have emphasized that. It doesn't necessarily predict the future. What it is meant to do is show the true nature of the present. It pulls back the curtain, so to speak, to reveal all of reality, not just what is apparent. So Daniel, Revelation, even some of the things that Jesus said were apocalyptic. When Paul talks about powers and principalities in Ephesians, he's tapping into this apocalyptic idea. There are flesh and blood powers and systems in the world, but there are deeper, truer spiritual realities behind those systems and entities as well. And on the more positive side, I think you can actually argue that Jesus' healings and miracles are apocalyptic too, in a way. When Jesus heals, it's a revelation of a deeper reality, a reality that's peeking into this more mundane reality, briefly. There's a reality of peace and wholeness and healing and life hiding just behind this one. And one day that reality will cover everything and have its day. But for now, Jesus' miracles pull back the curtain to reveal that it's just on the other side of a thin veil. A lot of Eastern Christian traditions actually live with a sense of this idea all the time. They talk about something called thin spaces, places in creation and in the lives of faithful people in which the veil that separates the, this reality from God's reality becomes thin and beauty is known to breach the barrier. Now again, let me allay any fears before we go any farther. If you're sitting there quietly freaking out, thinking, oh my gosh, we're going Pentecostal or premillennial or dispensational, please, I honestly don't even know what those words mean. I had to Google them just to make sure they were real words, and I still really don't understand exactly what they mean. But even those of us who lean toward the realism side and try to live pretty grounded, we have to remember that everything is spiritual. There is a spiritual significance and depth to all sorts of things we would probably rather there not be. Which means, if we're going to live faithfully in this world, faithful to God's kingdom in this world, we need to learn to see things apocalyptically. To see beyond just the surface level of things to the deeper spiritual formational realities behind everything. So it seems there is, perhaps, a world beneath the world. Like Guy, we are called to discover and live with an awareness of this deeper dimension of reality and adjust ourselves and our lives accordingly. Which leads to the second question. What if, 
if you were to discover said reality, what if that reality were totally different than this one? Just for fun, imagine with me that you live in a video game. And you discovered that within this video game, there was another game. This game was hidden deeper and was secret. Most players don't even find it. And this hidden game is actually much more important. There are bigger rewards, better prizes, better stories. When you discover this game, you realize that it is actually the reason that the other game exists in the first place. The other game is just a gateway, hopefully, for people to discover the deeper hidden game. But then you discover that the point system is the complete opposite of the level one game. All the stuff you do in the basic game to get points are completely useless in this game. Some actually even deduct points. And all the stuff that gets you points in this secret game actually make no sense by the logic of the basic level one game. So if you choose to play the deeper game, all the other people playing the regular game will think you're a complete idiot or that you're just really, really bad at the game because from their perspective, you're not actually doing any of the things that get you points. Instead, you're doing a bunch of pointless stuff. And then you would have to decide whether you really wanted to play that deeper game or just perhaps pretend you had never found it and go back and play the level one game because that's where all the people are and that's where all their approval is. Our transfiguration story today is fairly unique in the gospels. But despite how unique it is, we need to remember that it's not an isolated story. It's not just a random thing that we read that's disconnected from everything around it. It's part of a larger story and context can help us understand it and see it in a much clearer way. Well, here's the story that comes immediately before our story of the transfiguration. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. 
You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Now this is obviously an important story in the Gospels, but it's actually a lot more important than we often realize. Scholars are mostly in agreement that verse 21 is a hinge point in the gospel. Matthew uses the phrase, from that time on, only twice in his entire story. Once after Jesus' baptism and temptation, where it says in Matthew 4, 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near which is basically the thesis statement for his ministry and everything that comes after. And then here, in verse 21, after Peter's confession, where it essentially says, from that time on, he began to explain to his disciples that he must go to the cross and that if they are to be his disciples, they must take up their cross and follow. So these two verses, moments in his story, are kind of like thesis statements, they're kind of like ancient chapter dividers, dividing the gospel of Matthew up into three main sections by its three main themes. The first section, 1-1 verses 4-16, is all about identity, his origins, who he is. 4-17 through 16-20 through 20 is all about the kingdom Jesus' ministry, his teaching, his miracles, all of that. And then 1621 through 2766 become all about the cross. All about him trying to teach them that his vocation is the cross and that their vocation is to follow him and live cross-shaped lives. So Matthew is organized like a trilogy or a three-act play with a shocking and celebratory epilogue. Now, here's the point. The transfiguration comes not only in the section on the cross, it comes immediately after Jesus teaches his disciples that his path leads to the cross, immediately after this thesis statement moment that he's going to a cross and they have to follow him by living in the same way. The placement of these two stories is not an accident. It's as if the disciples are not allowed to see the glory of Jesus until they've first been told about the cross. Which means that part of what Jesus is trying to communicate to them is this glorious, radiant reality that you are witnessing in me right this second on this mountain is completely upside down from the reality that you usually inhabit. This radiant light is directly connected to the cross. After reading this week, I actually think that Matthew 16 and 17 are essentially just a narrative telling of the song slash poem in Philippians 2. 
In Philippians 2, starting in verse 5, Paul says this to that church community, in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to quote a song or a poem that probably all of them knew already. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage or grasp. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you imagine this as a song, I feel like you could kind of see how they would have sung it or how it would have played out. The song descends down, down, down to the bottom, to the lowest place it can possibly go, to the deepest levels of humility and self-emptying, and then it shoots up suddenly to the highest heights, to glory wonder and exaltation. I actually wonder if the notes or perhaps the volume changed with the lyrics of the song. Somehow, this radiant light shines through the cross. They go hand in hand. In this world, glory comes through humility. The path to exaltation in this secret reality is the path of descent. We've basically just been asking a bunch of questions throughout this sermon, and so I kind of just want to conclude with a couple more. What if, what if all this is actually true? What if you discovered a deeper reality, but this reality was as unexpected and disorienting as it was miraculous? What if it was as whimsically nonsensical as a Dr. Seuss book? Up is down and down is up. Sacrifice is power and power is folly. The humble are famous and fame is foolishness. What if the things we spend most of our lives thinking about, money, fame, achievements, power, control, security, whatever those things are, what if they had zero points, zero point values in that world? And what if the things we spend most of our days thinking almost nothing of, reading a bedtime story with our children, teaching them to read with foam letters in the bathtub, showing up for a friend with coffee when they need you or even when they don't need you, going out of your way to be kind to your spouse or partner for no reason, forgiving someone who has wounded you, whether they did it on purpose or not, volunteering at your kid's school or at a small, humble ministry, treating the person taking your order at a restaurant, or the person on the other end of the phone when you call customer service with care, grace, and dignity. What if these things 
were miraculous achievements that lit up the cosmos in the world beneath the world? What if, what if they were worth thousands upon thousands of points? And I'm not saying faith is about earning points, by the way. But if that were true, would you want to play that game? Would you be courageous enough to step into that light? And the second question is this. If all of this were true, how would you train yourself for a game like that? Because let's be honest, it wouldn't be easy. In order to play a game that makes no sense to everyone else, you would need to learn to see things very, very differently. You would need to learn to desire new things, value new things. The only way you could play an upside-down, inside-out game would be to become an upside-down, inside-out person. I'm currently reading a book called You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith. He wrote a book in the past called Desiring the Kingdom, which we've quoted a number of times. And this is kind of a reworking of that book, but for more of a church context instead of an academic context. And the premise of both of those books is fairly simple, but quite revolutionary. He says, essentially, that all of life is liturgical. That from the mall to our smartphones to sports arenas to television, music, and entertainment, we are constantly surrounded by liturgies, formational practices that shape our hearts and desires at a largely unconscious and sub-rational level. At all times, other kingdoms, other gospels, the gospel of consumerism, of power, of fame, of beauty, of therapeutic individualism, they're always shaping us toward their own ends, making us into their image. Everything is liturgical. But perhaps more importantly, people are liturgical. We are fundamentally, in his words, liturgical beings, not thinking beings, liturgical beings. We are shaped more by our desires and our longings than our thoughts. And our desires and our longings are shaped by our habits and the messages that we imbibe daily. Which means, if there is a world beneath the world, which is upside down and inside out, we will need upside-down and inside-out liturgies to help us see and become people of the world beneath the world. Liturgies of community over consumerism, of confession over condemnation, of compassion over competition, of alliteration over the alphabet. That's a lot of C's. If there is a world beneath the world, then our hearts must relearn the world, must be reshaped to conform to the deeper, mysterious world. So how will you do that? How will we do that? This will be an ongoing discussion for months, years to come. But for now, I kind of just want to send you off with the question. What are the liturgies that can reshape our hearts for a world where a cross 
is glorious and radiant and beautiful. And the common is miraculous. How do we reshape ourselves for that world so we can actually live it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Son is radiant, that there is beauty that is hiding just beneath our noses all the time. We pray that somehow, some way, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us, Father God, to be inside out and upside down people. Help us to have the courage to be reshaped into a reality much more beautiful than the one we see every day. We love you. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.